Hi, thanks for joining Your Body Advocate podcast. Today we have part two of an interview with Annalie Sullivan, who was an ICU nurse talking about death and dying. Just a disclaimer that today's episode is about taking somebody off life support in the ICU. So if this is something that might trigger you, I wanted to warn you before you listen to this episode. Let's take a deep breath to relax. Ready? All right. Enjoy the interview. Let's go. You're listening to Your Body Advocate, telling your body's side of the story. The podcast dedicated to supporting and improving your body-mind connection so you can live a pain-free, passion-filled life, dissolving one body tension at a time. Discover the healing properties of your own body language, and together, let's explore ways to support and improve essential self-talk. Now, here's your host, Master of Encouragement and Body-Mind Life Coach, Ruth Cummings. Well, hello, everybody. Today, we have another special guest. We've been doing podcasts, but this is the first time we're going to have it on film as well. Yes. This is my friend, Annalie Sullivan. Hello. And we're going to continue our conversation. She is a death coach. It's very cool. And we have some great things to talk about. We've been discussing off camera. And um, I think they're just, it's just fascinating. So we're going to just continue our conversation. So, um, and if you want to know more about Annalie, there'll be some links be- below. You can go to her website. You can get her ebook. You can get on her email list, all those things to get, because we're only going to cover a little bit of topic today. So, hi. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for jumping in on this. Good to be here again. Yeah, I know. Wee. So... Okay, this is a fascinating subject for me mm-hmm. and um, office, obviously for you too, but I wanted to jump in what we were talking about. So, um, and it's a tough subject. Yeah. So guys, we're going to be talking about someone dying who is on life support. So if that is in your life that's sensitive, this might not be the podcast or video for you. Just Wait. Um, But that's what we're going to be talking about today, the decisions to make and what's happening in the brain, possibly the spirit, possibly. Um, So that's what we're going to be talking about. So if that is intense for you, um, maybe look at a different podcast. So just for a disclaimer. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I want to I want to have your opinion because of your experience as an ICU nurse and watching people go through the process of dying if someone I knew or someone in my family was in a terrible accident and was on life support and there weren't very many brain signals, mm-hmm. my, my spirit and my body wants to keep them alive mm-hmm. because I feel like they're going to come back. Mm-hmm. So um, what say you? Oh, it's such a tough question and so dependent on who the person is for many reasons and what else is going on with their body. But to make it more simple to respond to, I'm going to bring an example of a patient I had in February of this year, 2022. He was in his mid-20s. I don't remember exactly, but he was in his mid-20s. He had been in a terrible car accident with his mother and his father, and his mother had passed immediately on the scene, and he made it to the hospital. He was in the neuro ICU. He had 
massive cranial damage, damage to his head, damage to his brain. We had, it's called an IVD or an EVD, an extraventricular drain. So it's a drain we put through the skull into the brain to drain out all the extra swelling that happens with inflammation. And he was non-responsive. So what what does non-responsive mean? Well, in the hospital, when I as a nurse am assessing, non-responsive really focuses on, because this person's also sedated, of course, so it's not like I'm expecting him to speak. We're not, we're not, we're not saying he's waking up. That's not what we mean by responsive. What we mean is, do they respond with what we call automatic reflexes? Like when you go to the doctor and they hit your knee and your leg, leg flicks, that's considered a reflex because the input doesn't actually go to your brain for the body response to happen. It goes to your spinal cord. It's technical, but it's a little different. So in the hospital, we really are viewing the body like a machine. So is your is your machine working? We're not even talking about you, Ruth, as a person. We're talking, does your leg respond when I hit it on the knee? If it doesn't, we're saying you're not responding to reflexes. So it gets a little simpler or more technical, we'll say, does Ruth respond to pain? And then we cause you pain to find out. We do something called a sternal rub. Take our knuckles, put it on your sternum. And as hard as we can, I've seen doctors, I've seen doctors bruise patients. I don't bruise my patients when I do it, but I've seen people bruised. We rub into your chest as hard as we can. On anybody with normal brain function, no matter if you're passed out dead asleep, if we have you super sedated, if you're in the OR on anesthesia, you're going to respond to that. There's gonna be some kind of flicker, some withdrawal, we'll say withdrawal to pain. So we say, do they respond to pain? Do they respond to voice? This one is before pain, of course. Most people don't if they're in the situation where we're talking about life support. Do they spontaneously open their eyes ever on their own? So. If we force your eyes open, can we get your pupils to react? Because pupils are automatically, they change to light. They change to, if I'm doing this to somebody who has some kind of awareness through their pupils, that's going to cause some kind of reaction, right? So we really look at the eyes. We, are they responding to, um, sorry, are they responding to audio sensation when I talk to them, the voice, and do they respond to pain? And do they have automatic reflexes? If none of those are true, that is a bad case scenario in the hospital. That is most likely this patient, we, on a medical perspective, we don't think they're coming back. So the next step, we're going to hook you up to an EEG. An EEG, I know this is a lot of background knowledge, but I feel like it's necessary to well, I think get into like one of the things you help people with is like learning the lingo. Yes. In in an ICU, mm-hmm. like all you know, like most of us would hear this information for the first time, and it's like yes. there's a lot of information. And people so, get so. very confused when you say responsive, and they'll be like, "She opened her eyes," and I'm like, and sometimes you can't open your eyes. That's a reflex. But are they purposefully tracking? Are their pupils responding to light? Are they responding to pain? You know, so that's where I. I don't just want to say, oh, they're responsive. I want to give a little context. But I think this next part is important yeah. to what Sorry I want to, to go into. You. No, please, <laughs> please interrupt me. I'll just talk. But you're not responding to reflexes. We want to look at your brain activity. Because in our current model, we really view the brain as the be-all, end-all. If your brain is working, we think you have consciousness. 
we think Ruth, her soul, whoever makes you Ruth, you're still in there. If your brain on a machine, we can see that it's working. So we hook you up to this EEG and it maps out your electrical output of your brain. If your electrical output is low, we don't technically, we almost have no way of officially saying that you Ruth are brain dead because people come back from the craziest things. So we're never gonna tell you as the medical team, like your son is brain dead, take them off life support, they're never coming back. We, we don't have definitive, not definitive knowledge on whether or not that's happening. So when your brain waves are much less than a normal person's, we use that as evidence pointing to the fact that you are most likely brain dead. We are gonna use that in conjunction with the reflexes that I talked about. And maybe they'll do CTs, MRIs, and more things that we don't need to go into, but just more and more tests that are really not there to prove that your son or daughter, whoever's on life support isn't there. They're there to make you comfortable with the fact that they're not living a typical existence at this moment. So this is branching me into two points. What do you do? Do you take someone off life support or do you not? This is what I found fascinating in our conversation earlier. Yes. I was like, whoa, I had no idea mm -hmm. where these two are about to go. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. So please. So I go down two paths in my mind. The first one is consciousness. And, and this has to take into what do you believe exists. And we'll talk about this in a moment because I think it's fascinating. I think there's compelling evidence for this. And then there's also... What's happening now? So what's going to happen to this person if we take them off life support and they die? Or if we keep them on life support and they continue on with this low brainwave activity? And what's happening to their physical bodies right now as they exist in the ICU? Two different paths. So let's start with consciousness and what's happening and what might be happening to them in the future. So we've talked about low brainwaves and how in the hospital sometimes we're like, okay, they're, they're gone. Take them off life support. But we also have tons of evidence now that just because your brain waves are low doesn't mean you're not having a huge inner world subjective experience, right? Like your consciousness is still perceiving, still going through experience. How do we know this? One of the reasons is there's a many, many, many psychedelic studies. Look at Berkeley, look in London. There's all of these science researchers are doing um, studies on psychedelics. And we've seen by putting people in MRIs while they're tripping on drugs, that your brain waves do decrease drastically. Like your brain activity on psychedelics goes down. How does that make sense? When we all common knowledge, if somebody's doing LSD, they're having a crazy trip, right? They're seeing colors they've never seen before, hearing sounds, voices, hallucinations. There's a lot going on in their inner world. But if we were to just hook them up to an EEG or look at their brains through an MRI, which is going to show us blood flow and that type of thing, it's going to look like the brain's not working. Like it's not online. It's mm. offline. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. So there's also, well, I forgot the other example. Oh, I had a patient, and I've seen this at the hospital, and it is true, where sometimes we have patients who their EEG is, it's not flat. It's never flat. If you look at an EEG, an EEG, there's always like these waves, but it looks offline compared to an online brain. That's the easiest way I have to describe it. That makes sense. It looks like low output is coming from the brain. And so we'll tell people like, okay, it's time to take them off life support. And we take them off life support and they come back. Like we take them, a person who wasn't breathing, who had a ventilator expanding and deflating their chest to draw in air. 
And when we would put them on spontaneous breathing trials, meaning we just turn off the ventilator, but we don't remove the tube, they don't initiate their own breaths. So we're like, oh my God, this person's not breathing on their own. Their brainwave activity is low. They're not there. And we tell the families that. And then we pull out the tube and all of a sudden I have had two patients now who have come back. They start from breathing. Like, they start breathing. They open their eyes. They wake back up. <sighs> they are re-engaged. And so. What a tough situation. Such a tough situation because you never oh. really know what's going on inside. There's also studies on post-traumatic stress from surgery, which I think is a super fascinating study of consciousness as well because we think that when we put you on sedation, and this is the whole point in sedation, we're, we're cutting off the pain, we're cutting off the experience of what's happening to you. But now there's more and more evidence on PTSD from surgeries because people's consciousness, even though technically their, their brain waves are low, they're not moving, they're not responding to reflexes, but their consciousness is remembering physically the pain, the pain that people have out of body experiences where oh. they're like, Right. Watching what happened. And we know it's true because the doctors talk to them later and they're like, how did you know that, you know? And it's just super fascinating. You should look this up. But there's so much evidence for the fact now that your consciousness is existing separate from how we're measuring it, right? Because people take this medical Western science as end all be all, but it's really, these are just tools to indirectly measure what none of us can experience directly, which is the consciousness of another person. Right. I can indirectly take in your consciousness, but I will never know Ruth's total inner being and what is happening inside. So that's the first huge <laughs> bit, right? How do you take someone off life support? You don't know if they're coming back. Right. Yeah. Like now, yeah, crazy. Yes. Okay. Really fast, I want to give a resource for people to look into. There's a neuroscientist, Dr. Eben Alexander. He had one of these experiences. They were about to take him off life support. He was brain dead. He had meningitis, something usually only kids get, a form kids get. It's very rare. He was, every doctor there was certain he was going to die. He had a spiritual happening on his inner subjective reality, and he comes back to life, and he talks about this, and he has books and papers, and it's super fascinating. So if you want to delve more into that, look up Dr. Evan Alexander. We will link that below. Yes. So then... <laughs> all right, so after, that's one path. That's one avenue. After I've just inspired you all telling you about how... They could come back. They can come back. In fact, they are still existing. So the term come back is very strange. Right. They're right? just in a different... And they, we, we don't... No one knows. We don't know. Like, okay, and that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, if you, if you are... If you believe in God... Yes. Or if you're an atheist, mm -hmm. that's an interesting conversation, too, because you're saying if they're atheist or agnostic, it's like. Well, let me yeah, let me okay, preface this. Okay. Let me go. Whole, before whole different... we go down route number two, we're going down one point five. Okay. <laughs> 1. All right. 5. Sorry. I'll no, 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 no. I love this. Thank you for reminding <laughs> me. But I this is I don't have enough evidence for this. This is a subjective theory of my own. OK. But I do think from what I've seen from who I've witnessed come back and who I've witnessed leave forever, there is something about the degree of spirituality a person has before entering this traumatic experience, before being in a coma or being on life support or being unresponsive in, in the ICU. We'll say that. I've noticed that the patients I have who come back had very rich spiritual lives going into it. They 
were either very Christian spiritually so, very in touch with prayer, or they had strong meditation practices, or there was something where the inner knowing, the inner consciousness that only we ourselves can experience with ourselves, right. they were in touch with that. And I think there is something, even when you read, like if you go look up Dr. Alexander, he had similar leanings. There's, It's just fascinating to think about how much does it matter what we believe? We know the placebo effect is 33% effective, right? If you believe something, 33% chance it's likely to happen in medical treatment terms. That's more than most drugs. So placebo effect is more effective than most medicines. Um, That's fascinating by itself. Yes. So like the brain is just so powerful. The brain is powerful. And that's another, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to branch off to that direction at right. this moment. So anyways, I guess I'm just saying what you believe matters. And okay. so what you believe going into a traumatic experience, do you believe you are divine and have the power, the creative power to reinitiate your brain activity? Or do you believe that we are all just materialistic beings, our bodies are machines, and once they're offline, our consciousness is offline? And how will that affect you in this moment? I can't say, but I'd be very interested. And in... in we can't ask because half of them or more, I don't know the percentage, leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They die. And most people leave. leave. And... So that's interesting. Okay. Yes. But we do have the experience of the people other. who come back. Yeah, which is fascinating. And right. they correlate with one another and go down this rabbit hole. But <laughs> let's go to the other side yes. because this video could go forever. <laughs> okay. Okay. Route number two is what's happening to the patient right now in the ICU. And it's in America. In America. Mm -hmm. I've worked in five level one ICUs. Level one means the worst of the worst. The most critical patients are going to these hospitals. They're the ones where the helicopters fly patients to, from rural hospitals to this big one. We have all the resources, all the best minds. That's where I work, right? Okay. That's just for some context. So what's happening in the best ICUs in America, in these yeah. trauma one ICUs? This also shocked me. That's why I'm like, come, let's do this right now. Yeah, it's insane. Let's just, first of all, I just want to preface it by saying that all of everything you know about health and wellness, how you know that lighting, seeing greenery, sound therapy, the nutrients you put in your body, all of that we do to take care of ourselves when healthy is gone when we're sick. It is not in mainstream Western medicine practice. And an example I gave you earlier of this is what do we feed people who are passed out and can't eat, but obviously need nutrition to survive? We put a tube, this is pretty normal, we put a tube down your nose to your stomach. What do we feed you? It could be healthy smoothies you get at Whole Foods, right? Could be a lot of high quality nutrition that supports your body. That's what I want as my recovering. person to have, like a family member. I yes. want them to have greens and whatever, whatever will take the inflammation down. Yes, okay. turmeric, all kinds of nutrients. Right. Yes. That's what I was assume. Oh, the hospital is loving my person. Mm -hmm. okay. You know, we have bags of feeding, a million different kinds, owned by Nestle and Coca Cola, and it is sugar syrup. You smell it. It's the <laughs> sweetest. Most disgusting smell to hit your senses. It's aggravating, right? And mm. there's a line of thought like, oh, the body needs glucose. The body needs glucose. The body needs glucose. That's what the brain works on, right? But then what are we doing? Because we're feeding them sugar syrup. We're going in every four hours, sometimes less, because we drive up their blood sugar so much. And we're checking their blood sugar. And then we're giving them corrective insulin. 
people who do not normally need insulin, we are giving insulin to. So me, I've never had insulin in my life. Yeah. If you are in the ICU being fed straight sugar. From Coca-Cola. From Coca-Cola for who knows how long you would need insulin, you know? Wow. It's insane. Okay. So then how do you, so what happens like? The fingers. So in the ICU normally, in these situations that we're talking about, and it's not true for everybody, but it is often true that you will be on what we call a vasoactive drip or a drug like levofed, norepinephrine, epinephrine, these drugs that cause our heart to beat. Okay. Like if, you, if I did a cardiac arrest on you, you drop dead now and you're in the hospital, we're going to slam you with a drug called epinephrine. Your body makes it naturally, but we have it as well. And it's going to jumpstart your heart into beating. What it also does to get more blood to your heart so that there's output from your beating heart is it compresses all of your vasculature. It makes it tighter. So instead of being wide and the blood going anywhere, you know, like slowly moving, it tightens that channel so that the blood moves faster through it. So it can get to our brains and our vital organs and perfuse our bodies. This is great. A side effect of these drugs is that when it's clamping down on the tiny vessels that are in our fingers and toes, right? Like your big veins (laughs) in the center of your body are like huge, they're fingers wide. Then our fingers and toes, they're like less than a ball tip pen. What's happening when you clamp that down? Your fingers are barely getting any blood supply. How do nurses and techs and medical assistants, how do they most often check your blood sugar? And there are alternative ways that I would suggest to nurses, but they're going to poke your finger. They're going to poke your finger again and again and again every four hours, day after day, night shift after morning shift after afternoon shift every four hours, just to make sure that we're not feeding you too much sugar, which we are, and then to give you corrective insulin, right? And then, (laughs) because you are causing tissue damage to a place no longer getting enough blood supply, no longer getting enough oxygen. it can't heal. It cannot heal. And so slowly, we're causing necrosis, which is the death of tissue in the fingers and toes. And I have seen patients, especially in the cardiac ICU, lose their fingers and toes from being on vasoactive drips in addition to sustaining tissue injury to the site every four hours. This is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. So these are just examples. This is why you're doing mm-hmm. what you're doing. Yeah, I want people to be aware of what's going on. We think it's healthcare. It is not. Healthcare is what Ruth engages in with your right. life coaching and your massage therapy outside of the hospital. In the hospital, we are engaging in death care of machines. We do not take the person as a whole individual. We stick you in a sterile right room. We don't care what the colors are, what the lighting is. We subject you to, I think it's sound torture. What do you do to prisoners when you want to drive them crazy? You put, you blare music, you blare sound that they have no control over, that they can't turn off, that they can't lower the volume. What do we do in the hospital? If you've ever been there, you know. It's endless beeping. It's endless alarms. The patient has no control over what they're listening to. I mean, I think for nurses, we are like, it's sound torture for us, too. If you talk to a nurse, it literally drives you nuts. It makes you a little angry, a little on edge. But nurses get a leave at the end of our 12-hour shift. The patient is stuck there in that room. So... I don't know, I have countless examples. I could talk more about it, but I do believe that the way we set up ICUs especially, I'm not talking about every single unit in the hospital, but especially ICUs is without regard to the person as a whole. And thus it turns into, unwillingly, but it turns into almost a torture chamber. And that may sound hyperbolic, 
But I have countless evidence for why I think that. And a lot of nurses I know agree with me. Wow. Yeah. So there's no, there's no running water. You know, um, yesterday I had my teeth cleaned Mm -hmm. and the, um, the, the tech, Mm -hmm. she was talking about sound that Mm -hmm. most um, hygienists, uh, when they retire, have hearing loss because of the, yes, that's doing your teeth. Yeah. And just that little one, Mm -hmm. you know, so the, you know, for anybody who's in the, in the ICU, I mean, there's, yeah, there's dinging and, um, dink. This makes me want to go another direction. You're talking about <laughs> oral ahead. hygiene. When you have a ventilator down your throat. Oral hygiene in ICUs. Yes, it's huge. And it's not done well. And it's a huge cause of sepsis and death in the ICU. So one of the number one reasons people die in the ICU is not the condition that brought you to us. It is what we do to you and the bacterial infections we give to you. And one of the ways we give them is when you're on a ventilator, your mouth is wide open, like a giant tube stuck down your throat with you breathing, right? So anybody who's like woken up with that little crust overnight in your mouth, that's happening every single day, coating that tube. Also, it also causes oral tissue damage when we put the tube down. So you'll get blood, blood crusts. What does blood have in it? It has sugar, it has glucose. That's how we check your blood sugar. What does bacteria love to eat? Sugar. So we are just creating this environment where bacteria love it and they come in and nurses are supposed to, and this is not talking badly about nurses because the flow of care in the hospital is so messed up. I don't believe most nurses even have time to do this, but every four hours we are supposed to clean your mouth. We have little oral hygiene kits, right? At best, you're gonna get a nurse who's gonna come in there and really quickly swab you with hydrogen peroxide and suction out the extra liquid and go on about her day. Very rarely are you going to get someone doing deep cleaning because honestly, they don't have time. And I'll tell you that the cleaning we do is not enough. Their mouths are never clean. Their breath is the worst smell you've ever smelled. But it doesn't have to be this way, right? We could devote more resources and care about this. People get infections from this. It's called ventilator-associated pneumonia or VAP. And it's one of the huge number one reasons and causes of death in the ICU. Hmm. So you're in the ICU and you are not being cared for. Care is one of the... Last words I would attach to what's happening in the ICU. So now we're back to the situation you asked me about at the beginning. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, what do you do? Yeah. So I, I didn't even know all this background. Mm-hmm. I just have a decision to make possibly with someone that I'm in, you know, that I love mm-hmm. who's in a, right. in a life or death. You think your decision and most people think their decision is, what do I believe is happening with this person's soul or consciousness or body? Do I believe yes. there is an afterlife? Do I believe there's the possibility of a miracle for them to come back? That's where people think their decision is. Right. That decision lies in the greater context of what are you putting your person through by subjecting them to life in the ICU, or as I sometimes think of it, to an extended death, a prolonged moment of death. He's no longer in that car accident. If we left him on the side of the road, this is terrible. But he gets in a car wreck, maybe he dies. Maybe he dies within an hour. But maybe we get him to the ICU. This patient, by the way, it did end up dying of sepsis. Well, actually, COVID and sepsis. We gave him COVID in the ICU, by the way. We gave him sepsis. He didn't come in with those things. (sighs) Sorry. (laughs) This is is kind of a dark... It's a dark turn. I don't, you know, I don't want to think about it. You don't, but people need to think about it. That's why you're here. I appreciate it because I, this is not something I was, that was on my, 
radar. Yes. I just want to emphasize quality of life is as important in the ICU as it is outside of the ICU. Quality of life is just as important when the person is unconscious or non-reactive as when they are conscious and reactive. But quality of life is not something somebody has in the ICU. And that needs to be considered when you don't know how long right. they're going to stay there. Yes. Um, okay. Good. We're okay. good. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Um, Stephen, just a second. So, like, if what is what are your solutions? I know there's many, and we oh. and we have like ten more minutes. Uh huh. So what are what? So what can we talk about today, and then we can do sure. another one. But my gosh. Sure. I have micro suggestions, and this is how I like to work with people who are going through this process, especially like loved ones making the choices for their family members. And then I have macro, like dreamless solutions, how I would like care in the ICU to change, how I think we could do it better within the ICU on a structural level, and what I think people right now need to do. Those are great, great, you know. Yes. I would like if I was in the situation, I would want to know what can I do right now because I can't change the system. I think the first thing, especially if you're not a nurse, even if you're a doctor, I don't think doctors know a lot of this because honestly, doctors spend 10 minutes with the patient in morning rounds, 10 minutes in afternoon rounds. They'll come in for a cardiac arrest episode, they'll come in for procedures, but they are not experiencing the moment to moment life and death of that person like the nurses. So I think if you are not an ICU nurse, you need to get a medical advisor or there are nurse coaches. You could have somebody like me. There are other nurse coaches too. There are medical advisors, there are legal advisors. You need somebody to come into that room with you who can ask the questions about what the care is, not what the treatment is. That's what you're talking to doctors about. That's a whole different conversation. Okay. So you, there's treatment and then there's care. That's there's the distinction. Treatment and care. Yeah. Got and it? I would say doctors are treatment and okay. nurses are care. Okay. For the most part. It can, it's different, but in this ICU setting, that's really what the system has set us up to be. Okay. You really need good oversight on what's happening. You need to be in the room with your family member every day. I don't care how hard it is to look at their swollen bodies on a ventilator with all these medicines in them, with the trauma that's happened. You are their person. If you love them, if you are the one making decisions for them, you owe it to them to be in the room mm. as often as you can. If you have to have somebody else go, go. Are they being fully cleaned with soap and water, not just antibacterial wipes, which hospitals are really fond of right now. Like, are they getting a full soap and water bath every day? Are they being turned every two hours to different positions in gravity so that they're not getting pressure ulcers where gravity literally pulls their bones down into their soft tissue, creates these huge wounds that people die of? Are their mouths clean? Can you make sure their mouths are clean? And also, like, you as their family member can care for them too. It's not just on this overburdened nurse who has so many patients, who's responding to medical emergencies. You're allowed to touch your person. You're allowed to help clean them. You're allowed to help turn them. You're allowed to help clean their mouth. So it's not that you have to. I'm not saying that. It might be beyond what you're emotionally capable of doing, but you need to make sure it's being done. So that's one thing I think if somebody's in the ICU, you need to be really cognizant of what they're feeding your patients or your family member. 
can we change that? There are doctors who will change it. I've worked with, uh, I don't think he was vegan, but he recommended for his patients who are end of life, this vegan smoothie protocol, and he would feed them green juices only. That's what I want. Me too. That's what I want. I mean, what's, yeah, what's the problem? Like, what's it's just more expensive. I would assume. I'll pay for it. Exactly. Pay for it, you know? So I think there's a lot of things like this. I want you to just take back ownership of what's happening. Take you, Just like you would feed, you would care what your child is being fed outside of the hospital, care what they're being fed inside of the and hospital. And not just really trust the systems. Do not trust the system. Okay. They're not here for this. This isn't what insurance is set up. It's not what capitalism is set up for. The system, sure, we're doing our best to treat them within our medical model and bring them back to you, to home, where they can embody wellness again. But we can do a better job at bringing wellness to them in the hospital. And right now, then, unfortunately, it has to be your responsibility. You cannot leave it up to the providers. Okay. So you can, so maybe we could give people a checklist. Yeah, I can, for inside the ICU, yeah, like, things to think about. Would that be something you could yeah, I can give put for that our, together. our people? Because A checklist like, of care. I lost you on the third one. You mm -hmm. know, I'm like, wait, okay, I have to moral mouth. Okay, I can, oh, I can massage their feet so and their much. hands. I can yes. make sure they turn. Okay, mm -hmm. I can, like, it's very, huh. And I think also, it feels good to know what you can do. It yeah. feels. And what good. I can't do. And like whatever yes. injury, okay, don't do that. Yeah. Because that could, you know, hurt the surgery side or whatever. Yes. But like you can do these. Yeah. And like, you know, massage them. For me, of course, mm -hmm. you know, what can I massage? What can I not? Mm -hmm. Can I even, how do you clean their mouth? Like I've never, you know, I don't know what that looks exactly. like. Exactly. You'd have to ask a nurse probably to show you. Okay. But you'll walk in and you'll say, I want to clean their mouth. And that nurse is going to A, be shocked. B, she's most like she or he, I'm sorry, is mo or they, is most likely not going to have the supplies on hand. They should be in the room, right? You should have a, they, the oral kits come in giant bundles. If anyone's on a ventilator, you should put a bundle in the room. So every four hours, you're just tearing off one of the sticks, you're cleaning their mouth, you're throwing it away, and you're ready. You're not running to the supply closet every four hours, right? That would make sense. That would make sense. That's good practice. That's organization. It's probably not there. So okay. she's going to have to go get the supplies. Then okay. she's going to have to come show you. And she might be annoyed. And I'm saying she because most of the nurses I work with are she. So I apologize. But yeah, most he, likely they, they're going to be annoyed at you. Right. Because you're making them do more work. Or and think, they probably haven't yeah. done it. And they're probably a little embarrassed because oh, I haven't had time to clean them out today. Or they're a great nurse. And they're going to be like, yes, thank God thank you want to help. Now <laughs> so I can, I'm going to yeah. show you how to do it. It is easy. I can... Maybe next time I'm at the hospital, I can make a video on how to do it. Oh, that'd be lovely. Yes. A couple of them. Like, yeah. all right, how do you... But it is, it does use equipment that I only have at the hospital. So we'll have to wait for videos until I, okay. I can do yes. that for certain. Yeah. But anyways, there are many things you can do and I will create a checklist. And that'd there's many be... things you should do while you're figuring out whether or not you want to extend this person's life or you want to take away medical invention. You can yeah. still care for your person. There's so many questions I have. Mm -hmm. So like, I'd like to make a list and then ask, you know, our audience, like what questions we have. For, yes. for example, like I, and, and we don't have time today, mm -hmm. but for another, another time, like if your, if your family was in this situation, mm -hmm. I want to know what you would do. That's the first thing. Sure. Second thing I would like to know is, um, uh, I, I lost my train of thought. 
Well, I can answer that question. Okay, let's go. (laughs) I actually, last September, one of my uncles died from COVID. So it was a very classic. He got COVID. He went to the hospital. He was on a ventilator. His organs started shutting down. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. I have a lot of peace with it because of what I believe about consciousness and the nature of spending time in the ICU. And his wife, I think, made the best decision. And as soon as his kidneys started shutting down, she said no more, which I think is beautiful. And we can talk about that another time. <laughs> I think it's beautiful. No, wait, wait. But let me tell okay, you right. why I'm most happy that she said that. Right. My like uncle I like I, That doesn't mean his, anything to me. Yes. My uncle's in his 50s. Ooh. Not old. 50s right. is not old. But he has struggled with body image, which led to bad diets, which led to diabetes, obesity, heart disease. He had some sort of immune compromised skin disease they hadn't figured out at the time of this. Mm. He had what we call comorbidities. But let me tell you, most of America has comorbidities. Most of my patients have, I think they're the fatal three, diabetes, heart disease, and obesity, which are all preventable. They are, in fact, reversible. Nobody has to go to the hospital like this. But when you go to the hospital like this and then you're subjected to the ICU, it does not turn out well. You do not have. So you're, 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 it goes down. It goes down. You don't have the baseline health and you don't respond to what's happening well. Mm. So he had all of those conditions and everybody I've seen in that situation, it's been a really terrible, tragic, prolonged experience of death. And so for me, that was the right call. I believe nobody has to go to the hospital like that. We know how to prevent these diseases. We know how to reverse these diseases. And that's a whole other That's a subject. whole other subject. I mean, I like mm-hmm. the, the fact that America, we have the number one use of insulin. We have the number one use of painkillers, number yes. one use of antidepressants. Yes. On and on yeah. and on. And our, our COVID mm-hmm. numbers of death are the highest in the mm-hmm. world. Like, wow. Because who is COVID actually killing? It's not killing normally. I'm going to say normally. There are always exceptions. But the vast amount, look at the numbers. It is people with the fatal three. Right. We don't have to have those. I'm on a mission too. Like, I want to spread kindness. Yes. Through touch or smiles. Yeah. And, um, you know, if we we could change our, our America to be so much healthier. And I think it starts with what you do, right? It starts with our relationships to ourselves, how we feel about our bodies, and how we feel emotionally affects how we feel physically. So what you do is so important, right? (laughs) Right. Like I'm trying to, it it does, Mm -hmm. like I've shown you, Mm -hmm. you are like, and the whole thing about spirituality and our body, Mm -hmm. it's it's amazing the difference. Yeah. Like you're saying, okay, if you you can come back or, or decide not to. But it's a powerful decision. Yes. Same thing with healing. Yes. Outside of the ICU. Yeah. If if people can recognize what's happening in their body on a spiritual level, mm-hmm. on a mental, and then on the physical level, which mm-hmm. we ignore. That's why this is called your body advocate. Because mm-hmm. we don't advocate for our body. We treat our body like it's separate. We let Western medicine take ownership of it. Mm-hmm. And it's wrong. And... You can do I'm right better. here fighting with you, sister. <laughs> yes. I'm, I mean, we yeah. can do better. And yeah. if, there's so many miracles in, in Western medicine. There are, definitely. I mean, and we can talk more about them. Yeah. yeah. And there's incredible nurses, incredible doctors. Yes. And we don't communicate. Mm. Like, I, a lot of people come see me last. 
Yes. Right? If they had seen me first and we talked mm-hmm. to their doctor at the same time, who knows what we could have prevented yeah. of, you know, autoimmune disease, depression, and much worse. We all we all know the the issues that we yes. face with think, teens and not being touched Yes. all these subjects. Yes. I'm sorry. I keep cutting you off. No, it's okay. It's okay. No, I love what you're saying. So I'm like getting lost on the rabbit hole. Like I so want to many, respond to So everything. many rabbit holes. Yes. Yes. But... I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think one of the reasons you're the last person to be seen, and I think one of the reasons why when I first started developing these ideas, I was really hesitant and afraid to speak of them, is that if you don't go 100% with the dominating paradigm of thought, of Western, of like deep Western medicine, right? If you're a little bit off, you're immediately doubted. You're immediately a cuckoo, a hippie, something's wrong with you. And so people come to us after they've tried all the mainstream things and it hasn't worked. Then they're willing to give us a chance, like to listen to what we're saying and actually listen and hear it. So I think there's a problem of perception and culture. Amen. Yes. I agree with you. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've been doing this almost 30 years Mm -hmm. and it's interesting how how we are the last, yes, the last um, and not the first, and we're not a team. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you. Like if we could shift that paradigm to say, hey, there's a lot about Western medicine that's awesome. Yes. And why? let's try these first. Yes. They're a lot cheaper and so much easier on your body. Yes. And then yes. if that doesn't work, then go have surgery. Then go yes. do the other parts. Yes. And you can, you can just change a few things in your diet. Um, mm-hmm. I just, you know, talked to... My, our, the podcast we just did with um, uh, Stacy and Marcus, um, they have a wonderful website, Your Vegan Family. Mm. Some incredible ways to heal your body with food. Mm-hmm. Simple, simple things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just went to the Czech Republic a couple of years ago, actually, now to oh, visit wow. Venerable Damadipa. Okay. How many drive throughs do you think there were there? Zero. Right. Amazing. And I know. Yes. And like there was one Starbucks yeah. in the whole place. And that was in Prague. Wow. We bought uh, two waters and I think a chai for uh-huh. $40. Oh, wow. And who was in line? <laughs> Americans. Americans. That's it. It was everything was in English. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like. That's insane. I mean, we're, we're taking our, our like our bad habits Across the world. Yeah, it's really sad. I saw that in Mexico City recently. I've seen it in Puerto Rico. I've seen it. Every time I travel, I see American fast food chains, and it breaks my heart. I'm like, I'm guilty. Oh, no. I'm totally guilty. I am. I am. Chick-fil-A. Thank God they're closed on Sundays. (laughs) Maybe maybe God's grace. (laughs) Yes, I know. It's not good. I know. Okay. All right, so let's just recap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have so much to talk about. So much we did talk about. Yeah. Let's recap the two. Mm-hmm. If we have someone in the ICU, the two paths. The two paths we need to think about. Yes. We do need to really reconcile what our versions of reality are and what the patient's versions of reality were. Were they a hardcore atheist who didn't believe in any form of divine consciousness, didn't even believe consciousness was anything that existed outside of a physical body? Were they a deeply spiritual person in touch with whatever they saw as greater than themselves? And what are we? What do we believe is possible? What did they believe is possible? So that's a very important question. And I think it's it's a question that is asked, to be fair. It is asked in the ICU. This is what we provoke people to think about. 
Good. Yes. That's good. That's great. That okay. is great. Right. <laughs> we do something well. But one of the other things that is not thought about that I really strongly want to emphasize is what is the care they're receiving? How can you take ownership of that care? But also, what is the point that you're going to decide that the treatment and the protocols that we're doing in the ICU, the example we gave in this video was the Q4. Q4, by the way, I'm sorry, that's nurse speech. It means every four hours. Q means every. But we're giving Q4 or every four hour blood sugar sticks. Okay, Q4. Q4. I was going quarter four. I'm sorry. Yes, I, I do that that's a lot weird. with nursing lingo. But at what point are we shifting from doing things for the patient to doing things to the patient? When have we become a responsive team, when have we turned from being a responsive healthcare team trying to save their life to really just extending the process of death and inflicting pain and making things worse? When And you'll see this point happen. You'll The doctors will come to you and be like, now they have this. Now they have this. Mm. You'll see the progression of disease that we are inflicting and contributing to in the ICU. And you need to be really aware of when we start crossing that line. And I think it would help to have some sort of coach, some sort of medical advisor there to help you make sense of what's happening because it's a lot to take on for yourself. So if we can't find you, mm -hmm. how do we find one of those? I would Google nurse coach. Nurse? Really? <laughs> there are I'm nurse coaches out there. I'm learning so there much. There are nurse legal, you know, they nurse have different... Legal? They have got different titles. I'll have to look into this more, honestly, and send you some resources as a follow-up. But yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is fun. We will do some more. If you guys have any questions, uh, let me know. You can text mm -hmm. me. You can email me. And um, we can get these questions answered. I, I sure have a lot. I'm going to write some down. Okay. Thanks great. a lot. See yeah. you next time. See you soon. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me again with this interview with Annalie Sullivan talking about death and dying in the ICU. Such great nuggets of information. You can get a hold of her in the show notes at her website, or you can email me or her with any questions that we might answer on our next podcast interview. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Your Body Advocate with Ruth Cummings. We're so glad you've joined us today and truly believe you can live a pain-free, passion-filled life. To connect with Ruth, work with Ruth, or to grab your free ebook, go to ruthcummings.com. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. Until next time, friends, be open, include the unincluded, think outside the box, and spread love and kindness one smile at a time.